On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jamie Dew, president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and professor of Christian philosophy there about human nature and the self. So we cover topics related to those two things. What is the self? What is human nature? What are the various views on these things? What are the various benefits and costs to them? And what is the practical implication of our views on these things? What does that do for us in our regular life? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up anywhere, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can find us on our website, thelondonlyceum.com. You can contact us there, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. We're a podcast that hopes to foster thinking. And we want to do that by creating an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today I have the honor to introduce you to Dr. Jamie Dew, who is the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Jamie and I got to know each other when he was at Southeastern, when I went and started a THM there. And... Really, I, I took the first course I took at, in my THM work was his PhD seminar on the philosophy of mind, and it's really shaped my research interests uh, since then. And I found him just to be awesome overall. So I don't know how many of you guys know who, who Jamie is. I am assuming a good swath of our listeners do because I think the most, probably seventy percent of our listeners are Baptists, so they're they're aware uh, of who he is. But some of some of them may not know who you are, Jamie. So. Before we jump into the topic, I mean, I think you're well-suited for this. You, you did your second PhD, Thinking About Human Nature uh, at the University of Birmingham. Tell me <clears throat> why you got interested in this topic. Sure, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, I'll just start here by saying, man, it was a pleasure to have both of you guys at some point or another in a class or a seminar or something like that and had a great time. And uh, yeah, you, you came to Wake Forest and we were going to do PhD work together, right? And then I moved away. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was the deal. You you ripped my heart out. You know, I was yeah. so excited. I, I moved from Louisville right. to Lake Forest, and then uh, yeah. see ya. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That one time uh, you packed up, and moved across the country. And I left. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, just, so my name is Jamie Dew. I uh, I'm currently uh, the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College uh, down here in the great city of New Orleans. Uh, it's a crazy, crazy, awesome fun, spectacular city filled with everything. It's a city that I never thought that I'd live in. And this is certainly a job I never thought that I would be doing. Uh, But in God's providence, this uh, seems to have been custom made for my family and our experience right now. And while it's challenging and certainly we face difficulties along the way and obstacles, it's also a deeply, uh, sorry about that. It's also a deeply rewarding responsibility that I have uh, because I get to, I really get to shape things that help people and establish people. And so that's what I do for my day job. Now, my past life, I got to be a philosopher and I still get to dabble in philosophy and philosophical theology and things like that. I'm actually teaching this semester philosophy of religion here at New Orleans at the grad in the grad program. And that's lots of fun. So I do get to stay attached to the academic stuff uh, to some degree, a satisfying degree. Um, but 
admittedly, I probably am a little better suited today when I do that kind of philosophical work simply because of my administrative responsibilities. I'm probably a little better suited these days as a, as a bit of a generalist. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think, you know, when I came into this role, I, I really sensed number one, that I wasn't the kind of philosopher that we put in the same discussions with people like a Peter Van Inwagen or Alvin Plantinger or William Lynn Craig. That's just not who I am. Um, but at this, and then at the same time coming into this role, I would never again really have the, the opportunity to spend long seasons of my life doing deep, 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 deep philosophical work. Uh, and I'm okay with that because frankly, if I can just say it this way, it was very clear to me that there's this just massive crop of horses, young, talented, brilliant, godly, young philosophers coming up behind us. And it was very clear, you know, the Lord, the Lord had raised up people to do that kind of work. And so I, I get to do what I do. It's a joyful responsibility. And um, so, yeah, that's who I am. That's what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think you're the only SBC president that could call me and I could answer, Hey, what's up, dude. So <laughs> yep. I, I, I think if people aren't familiar with you or, or New Orleans, they should check it out because I think you're doing some awesome stuff there. And uh, I have the utmost respect for you and know that your personal integrity and character is of the highest quality. So for those who are listening, I, I mean, Jamie's awesome. So if Jamie's writing something, Jamie's doing something, Jamie's talking about something, I, I recommend you check it out because I think it's going to be great stuff. Uh, he he really cares about people. He loves them. And he's really trying to advance the local church and, and, and the gospel throughout the nation. So awesome okay. stuff on that. But okay. we do want to talk about human nature and the self because you've spent yeah. a lot of time focusing on that. So okay. Brandon, I don't know if you wanted to give us a basic definition, start with a basic definition. I will not say anything about a basic definition. That's an inside <laughs> joke for you, Dr. Do. You probably oh, don't okay. understand that. But, uh, but let's start with the concept of self. Um, okay. You know, the, what exactly do we mean by that? I won't ask you for the word definition, but what do we mean by that just uh, in the context that we're using today? Because it seems like a simple word, but there's right. a lot packed into that and how we understand it. Yeah, and you know, the question itself probably strikes most listeners if they're not familiar with these this literature and these discussions. The question itself probably strikes us as really odd. You know, like if you asked what a particular theory was of something, that makes sense. But asking this question about what is a self probably listeners need to even wrap their minds around what we're talking about. So like, for example, I am myself and you are yourself. And so I'm an individual and you're an individual and we think of ourselves as persons and all those things. And, but what exactly are we getting at when we start these discussions off and we, we inquire about, well, what are selves? And um, admittedly in my mind, selves are these incredibly unique uh, individuals or individuated things. Uh, in my mind, these run, maybe some philosophers would take a very different approach to this. But in my mind, these are, the concept of self runs along with the concept of personhood. And when I think about selves, uh, I, I tend to go in the direction of a, a being with a first person perspective of some kind. Um, and there's quite a, there's quite a, quite a variation of this concept of selves across the history of Western thought. Um, years ago, I, I helped co-author a book with Stuart Kelly on postmodernism, and I was tapped to, to write the chapter on a postmodern view of the self. And as I got into that and realized what postmoderns were getting at, 
uh, I immediately thought, man, if I just start here to most Western readers, it's going to sound so strange and bizarre. Let me, let me tell the story of how we got there. And so I, I started with Plato and moved all the way forward up through postmodern thought and traced this concept of the self across Western history. And, um, and uh, so anyway, there's various views there. I tend to think of selves as beings with first person perspective. So let me, let me un unpack what that means. Um, and, I, and I don't know, I'll, let me admit here, I don't know if that is enough. I, but, so what I would say is I think at minimum, sel selves are beings with first person perspective. There might be more to them than that. But uh, so far, I don't know that we have the best luck of identifying exactly what else it would be. But it's at least this. So you could think of first person perspective as a necessary condition for selves even if it's not a sufficient condition for selves. And, and for those that are listening, if you're not familiar with that distinction, what we're making here, let me, let me put it this way. A necessary condition is a condition that has to be met for something to come about, but just because you meet it doesn't guarantee that that result is going to come about. Okay. So for example, an illustration, uh, a necessary condition for me paying my bills is that I have to have money in my account, right? I can't pay my bills unless I have money in my account, but just because I have money in my account, it doesn't guarantee that my bills are going to get paid. So having money in my account is a necessary condition for paying my bills. A sufficient condition by contrast is a condition that, man, if you meet that one, you've done it. You've guaranteed this outcome, right? So if it rains, the streets are going to be wet, you know, assuming they're not under a tree or something like that. If it rains, the streets are going to be wet. This condition of raining guarantees this outcome. So what I'm saying is it seems to me that first person perspective is at minimum a necessary condition for selves, even if it's not a sufficient condition. It may very well be a sufficient condition, but um, you know, there's some questions here as we look at animals and what they can do. So we start off as thinking of our uh, of selves as beings with first person perspective, and that seems to capture something genuinely distinct about us as humans um, than the rest of the animal kingdom that, that we have around us. So being with my, first person perspective. My, my immediate thought is, well, what about the people who are in comas or, or fetuses? Do they have a first person perspective at that point? Right. Right. And so a lot of, a lot of times a fair question, because in those cases, it doesn't seem like they do. And in, in not even fetuses, but even in the case of like a, a toddler, I mean, best I can remember, it's somewhere around 18 months that that little infants or toddlers begin to accumulate or have this thing called first person perspective. So we clearly need to qualify what we just said. So maybe it's not that they have it realized, but there's at least the capacity for a first person perspective. And so even a fetus in the womb has that capacity. Even somebody that's in a vegetative state is still the kind of being that generally speaking, has that capacity. So we would still say of people in vegetative states and fetuses and infants and things like that, that they are persons or selves. Uh, even if first person perspective is not realized in that moment, they still have the capacity. Same thing for like somebody sleeping, right? Somebody sleeping is not actually having first person perspective in that moment. I don't tend to at least. And uh, I don't think that I cease to be a, a self or a person in those moments uh, just because it's not active. So there's a qualifier right there. Um, I need to say something about, well, what do you mean by first person perspective? Um, it's to put it in an odd way. It's the ability to think of yourself as yourself. So it's not just the instinct to be able to recognize yourself in a mirror per se, but it's to actually be able to reflect on yourself as an individual. 
right? And so, like, for example, when we find human beings saying things like, you know, I tend to think this about my thoughts or my, my beliefs, or I tend to think about my beliefs this way. In this case, you are aware of the fact that you have these thoughts, and you even reflect upon your own self in those thoughts. It's almost like a meta-reflection on yourself. And so that that does seem to be something different than anything we find in dogs or cats or amoebas or any of the other things like that. Like that. Um, and so I would say, just generally speaking, uh, one of the better starting points for the discussion is a being with first-person perspective. It may very well be more than that. We may need to unpack that more, but uh, that's where lots of debate in philosophy is, is, well, what else would you add to it? And, and it's not exactly clear. It, do you think the the being with the first person perspective does that link up with now I don't know how to pronounce this because I just interviewed Mark Garcia and he pronounced Boethius as like Bethius. So if I've totally messed that up, then forgive me. I, I think it's Boethius. Bo- okay, I say Bethius because he's him, you know. <laughs> Bo- Boethius, he's got his definition, I guess, of a person. What, what I don't remember exactly what he says, but does that link up with what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar off the top of my head with, uh, with Boethius and what he says about that, but I would be very interested to hear what he had to say. What is it, like a personal or rational substance or something like that? I don't remember. Yeah, so I mean, there, there, that is one way of looking at it. I mean, so, and you see this in Christian theology when questions about the Imago Dei come up, right? So immediately there's this rational view or a substantival view that says basically a, a, a human, uh, somebody with the Imago Dei is a being that has rational capacities such that they can relate to God. And essentially what they're saying there is that there's something about their nature or substance that gives them that capacity. So I'm more familiar with that in discussions about Imago Dei, but that clearly overlaps with what we're getting at here, especially when you start talking about human persons. Uh, Because from at least from a Christian perspective, you can't start talking about human persons without also bringing in concepts of Imago Dei. Uh, but of course, there's going to be multiple views on Imago Day as well. So, um, so I don't, I don't, certainly don't think that what I'm saying there would be at odds with what Boethius is saying. Um, it might, but it sounds to me what he's saying there is a little bit more tuned in on Imago Day. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, Brandon, did you have any thoughts on that? I'm just um, trying to think through the difference in in how we understand self and how we understand human nature. So. I guess I kind of think of it like as self, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but that, that self is is what makes me um, not be you. And then human nature is what makes both of us not uh, merely an animal or not merely an object. Um, so number one, I guess, is that a helpful way of thinking about it? But number two, like, what are the, what is the, how should we understand what is the necessary and sufficient condition of being a human person? Because Mm -hmm. um, I guess my biggest thing is I'm not understanding. Should we just use self and human nature as, and personhood all as synonyms or are these um, different things that we need to parse out um, in a little more detail? I, I do think you can use some of these terms. I am at least using some of these terms synonymously, but I wouldn't put them all three in the ca- same category. So I, so I would use, for example, self and person synonymously or roughly synonymously, but I wouldn't use self and human nature or person and human nature as synonyms because clearly human human beings or human persons are persons. 
but um, so I, I think that I think that there's some things uh, we do need to try to detangle a little bit there. Um, so I'm going to use self and person in the same way to reference the same kind of thing. But we would start here by simply saying that human persons are not the only kinds of persons that there are. So this is why I wouldn't want to say persons and humans are the same thing, because now there's a ton of thought and attention that needs to be given over, well, exactly what do we mean when we say God in three persons? But we at least, we start the conversation by at least noting that we do say such things, mm-hmm. that the Father, what do we mean when we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit? You know, what is what is exactly this distinction that we're making? Well, we're making a distinction about persons. We're not making a, a distinction about nature, per se, right. at least the best I can tell. Um, so we do say that there are divine persons. We also say we tend to put, when I say we, I mean the Christian tradition, generally speaking, places angels in the category of persons as well. So we have to say, look, with the category of persons or selves, um, you know, you've you've got at least three categories where that kind of language gets employed. So I would start off by saying, you know, maybe we need to revise this. But there's at least three different kinds of persons that there could be, right? And humans are one of them, right? So we start there. And so I would say of, of human persons, of angelic persons, of our divine persons, there seems to be, um, you know, and I'm, I'm delicate here on the Trinity because, you know, <laughs> man, if you haven't been reading and paying attention to Trinitarian literature for the last five years, you are like deeply and woefully behind (laughs) like explosion. And I'm one of those who hasn't had the opportunity to do this. And so I'm trembling as I say this, you know, to, 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 to see this as three distinct, you know, centers of consciousness. I don't, I don't know that that would be the right way to say that. Yeah. I don't think that's what most people would want to say is the, the traditional Orthodox way to say it, but even if you bracket out the Trinitarian persons, you still have the angels. That's right. That's right. So let's just say this for, for the Trinity, for the Trinitarian Godhead persons, you've got, it's an analogy at best, right? Whatever it is we mean by person with regard to the persons of the Trinity and persons, Jamie, Jordan, and Brandon, man, if your name had started with a J, it would have been awesome there. (laughs) Um, You know, there's three of us persons here, humans, Whatever it means for person in the case of the humans or whatever it means for persons in the case of God, that's not exactly the same thing. It's at best analogous. So bracket them off. Angels and humans, yes, persons, those categories apply. And in those cases, we would at least have three centers of consciousness and, and such. So I don't, I wouldn't use person as, as in the same category as human. So so the three of us are all persons and we all, we all are human. So we all have a, a human nature. So now I guess maybe let's home in on the, on the human nature idea. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the different views that have been sketched out throughout history and maybe that are still um, in the literature now of, of what makes a human person? Maybe this gets into discussions of, um, you know, uh, mind and body and, and issues of that nature. Um, maybe just sketch out some of the main views and then we can get into what your uh, preferred view is on that. Sure. So think of it this way. When I, whenever I do teach apologetics or philosophy of religion, when we inevitably turn to the arguments for God's existence. And there's a bit of a misnomer where people will say things like, well, what is the cosmological argument or the teleological argument? And I will push back and say, there's no such thing as the 
cosmological argument or teleological argument. Rather, what there are is that there are families of arguments, right? So cosmological arguments is, refers to a family of a wide assortment of different arguments that all operate on some basic ideas that they share. And so they're in that bucket or that family because they all kind of operate on the same information. And I think the same thing is true here in philosophical and theological anthropology. There's, there's, man, my gosh, there's dozens and dozens of views that there could be, but generally speaking, best I can tell, and I'm, you know, I'm certainly not the world renowned expert on this, but I've been at it for, on this, in this field, I've been at it for 12, 15 years, something like that. The best I can tell, there's three big families of argument or three big families of views. Okay, there's what I would call the really, frankly, the the most dominant view is a family of views that we would all reference as something called substance dualism. Okay, and there's lots of different brands of substance dualism. You know, I mean, the the brand that that Plato endorses is very close to what Descartes does, but it's got some differences, and the brands that that Richard Swinburne and, and, and J.P. Moreland and Charles Tolliver and those guys will argue for. It has some differences from each other. And, but all of them, in short, what substance dualists are going to say is I'll argue that they will make two major ontological claims about human persons. The first claim is what I call, and this is very general and very vague intentionally because I want to capture all the substance dualists here. Number one claim that they make is what we call stuff distinction. Stuff distinction basically says something like, well, there's two basic kinds of stuff, and they're going to call those stuffs substances. And so there's two basic substances or two basic kinds of stuff. There's material stuff, and then there's spiritual, non-physical stuff. In the case of a human being, those stuffs are a material, physical body, and that's a substance in and of itself. And then there's also a spiritual substance that they call a soul. And so what the claim number one, according to the substance dualist is, well, there's two kinds of stuff, body and soul. All right. Now, then they make they go on. And I think for a lot of people, they think that that's that in and of itself, that one single claim just is substance dualism. And I think that that we're getting really sloppy if we say that, because there's actually a second claim. And I'd argue that this second claim is the bigger claim. It's the more fundamental claim that substance dualists are going to make. And we have to detang, they're related, but you have to detangle them from each other. The second big claim is what I call person soul identity. And this view basically says that while there are indeed two stuffs, body and soul, the human person just is the soul, right? So the relationship that a person has to their soul is a relationship of identity, right? You, that is to say, you are the soul. Think about every funeral you've ever been to, you know? The preacher stands up over the casket and says something to the effect of here lies granny's body. This ain't granny. Granny's up there, right? And essentially what they're saying in that moment is that the person is identical to the immaterial, the non-physical substance. The body is something else. So the relationship on substance dualism that you have to your soul is one of identity. It is what you are. It is who you are. The relationship you have to your body is one of possession, right? Your body is like the shirt you're in right now. It's something you own. It's yours and you're in it, but it ain't you. And I think in short, those two claims capture the thrust of what all people in the family of substance dualism would say. Stuff distinction and body soul or person soul identity. That's substance dualism, 
Okay. And there's lots of different examples of all that. I started off here and I, I think uh, this is, I, I would say this is the most dominant view because I mean, this was Plato's view. And as Alfred North Whitehead said, all the philosophies, but a footnote to Plato. I mean, Plato's had a deep, deep impact on, on Western thought. Uh, this has been, this was arguably Augustine's view, though our Augustine seems to talk in some ways at times that he sounds different from that. This is Calvin. Uh, this is, this is the reformed tradition by and large. Um, this is Descartes. This is tons and tons of what, and by the way, if you are this view, I, I don't hold this view, I'll say this, but I, I have deep respect. I mean, look, if this is your view, you're in good company. You got some major, major horses throughout history that have held this view. You're in good shape in terms of being able to defend this view. Uh, but I started off holding this view and I still claim one of their claims, but I deny the second. Okay. And I'll come to that in a minute. All right. Another big family is materialism. And materialism denies that there's any non-physical substances at all. It says that there's only physical material substances and man, so you are just the material stuff. That's it. Okay. And there's a whole bunch of different materialist views that you could hold to. You could be, for example, um, you could be a constitutionalist. You could be an eliminativist. You could be an animalist. There's all, and there's no need to necessarily flesh out all those right here, but there's just lots and lots of different brands of materialism that you could hold to. Okay. But all the materialists are going to say no soul, no soul, no spirit, just physical stuff. And that's just it. Okay. Uh, and then there's Thomas, there's Aristotle's view, which gets adopted and important to note and insist on it gets not just adopted, but it also gets adapted by Thomas Aquinas. And this is a view that I would hold with some modifications. Okay. Hylomorphism is basically a view that says, um, so the, high, the, the words there, hyle morphe, so hyle refers to matter is what it's generally interpreted as being. It actually technically means wood, as in like wood from a tree or something like that. So it's referring to the material stuff of beings. And then morphe for form. Now, I think that there really is a lot of debate within hylomorphism, hence the various versions of hylomorphism that exist. I think there's genuinely a lot, a lot of debate in hylomorphism over what do we mean by form? There are some hylomorphists like Bill Jaworski and some others like that, that man, when they talk about form, they seem to mean nothing more than just shape and structure, organizing principle. And if that's what you mean by form, I think that this really is just another expression of materialism. Okay. And I don't hold that view at all. And I, and there's debate as to whether or not this is what Aristotle means. Aristotle talks in some places where it could be easy to take him that way, but he also talks in some places where no, he seems to be talking about this form or this immaterial soul as something, something non-physical. Thomas, this is the adapts part. He adopts hylomorphism. And in the case of human persons, what that's going to say is, is that the, the person Jamie do just is the body soul composite. It takes both the material body and the soul together in union, properly related to each other like that for the person Jamie do to exist. Okay. And so Aristotle, you know, he takes that to mean that that's how we exist. And Aristotle would take that to mean that the person, when death happens, ceases to exist and never comes back and the lights are just off. But, and, and for Aristotle, it seems like form might just be shape and structure. 
okay? But for, for Aquinas, however, it's no, the, the form of the person Jamie Dew is, is the soul. It's the substantial form, and it informs that body and makes it, it, it makes it a human person, okay? So for Thomas, the body or the soul is that by which it is human and belongs to the category, the, the species and genus that it does. And it's the soul is that by which it is living. For both Aristotle and Aquinas, the soul is the life principle of the being. And so to live or to have life is just to be ensouled. So it is that by which it is human and it is that by which it is living for Aquinas. But the body, what about the body? The body is the individuating principle. It's what makes me Jamie and not Brandon or Jordan, right? So this is what individuates and makes individual persons, right? And so both of them, you can see how metaphysically, ontologically, both of them have a deep contribution to personhood and personal identity. And I think that that, and here's why I like that view. To me, this view you could call holistic in some way that the person is the body-soul composite together. And look, I, I know that there's debate on this, and there's certainly been outliers throughout history. I'm not denying that. And again, if you hold a substance dualist view, you're actually in really good company. But I do think I'd have to say that as I survey Christian history, what the church has been saying for the majority of our history is that the human person is both of those things together, not just one of those. So at the end of the day, going back to the substance dualist claims about stuff distinction and person soul identity, I think that Christianity does indeed affirm stuff distinction. I think that Christianity really does teach us that bodies and souls are different kinds of things and that souls are real spiritual entities that really do exist, right? And so I do think Christianity says that, but I don't think Christianity affirms person-soul identity, that you are identical to your soul and only your soul. I think Christianity actually teaches some kind of holistic account where it says the person is both of these two things together. And to me, hylomorphism, the Thomistic versions of it, the best I can tell, give us the best way to speak to that and get at that. But of course, there are potential things we need to consider. And there's for every view, by the way, there's problems that come about. Yeah, yeah. The problem with my view. Yeah. I, I wanted to... Oh. I, no, you go ahead. I, I there was a family of well, questions that arose from your thing. So, so back when I go. took your your class at Southeastern, I, I think I in one of my exams I, I tried to argue for substance dualism. I think I've since come around to your view, but oh. you still gave me a pretty good grade on that. So thank you. But <laughs> so as far as my question is, because one of my main um, lines of argument when I was trying to argue for substance dualism in that exam was that it seems to fit most uh it seems to map on the best with the intermediate state um right. so so i guess my question is um do you consider that to be a weakness or like maybe a, a you know something that's more difficult for the holomorphous to explain since we don't have identity attached to mm -hmm. the soul because you know on the face of it it seems like you know to be absent from the body to be present with the lord like you know my identity somehow goes to be with God while my body is still in the ground before right. the final resurrection. So um, do you think that that's, and, and I guess how, how would you um, understand the intermediate state on your view? Yeah. So I think that from my view, there are two big clusters of questions and, and both of those clusters come from what I call the bookends of life, the beginning and the end, right? You've asked questions about the end, but let me be clear. There's some questions about my view that I get asked all the time about what about the beginning? 
because, and I'll just start, let me start there. Because if I say that the person is the body and soul, then what do you do when conception has happened, but a body's not yet been formed? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that it's not a human person? And, and, and every evangelical now, their ears go up and they start going, oh, wait a minute, for abortion reasons, we got to fight for that. And let me just say to all my evangelical friends, yep, you're right. And yep, I'm with you in that fight. Okay. I don't think that you have to have a fully formed body. I think all you've got to have are the basic building blocks of that body and that soul together. And by the way, that is exactly what I think what happens at the moment of conception. So all that to say, I think that my view can just as easily as any other evangelical that wants to place life starting or human personhood starting at the moment of conception. I think that my view can actually do that just as easily. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I think my view can satisfy that front end of the bookend very well and very neatly. Now, there may still be some questions about how exactly does that happen. Hey, but look, every view is going to have some questions about, hey, how exactly does that happen? I just think for now, I'd say, look, my view does that as well. Okay. The end then. What do you say about death and the intermediate state? And look, let me me start in defense of your essay uh, and affirmation of it. I do absolutely think that the whole concept of the intermediate state is actually taught by Christianity. I do. Um, and I know, and look, that, that is at least, uh, even if you could say, cause some, this is what some materialists will say. Materialists will say, oh, there's just these passing references in the new Testament to some intermediate state. And I just scratch my head at that as of like, how do you dismiss that? <laughs> Granted, it may not get the lion's share of emphasis, but did, did the Bible say it? Yes or no. And if it said it, whether in passing or robustly unpacking it, if it said it, we have to affirm it. So I just think that that dismissiveness that materialists will have about about the intermediate state is really unwise. Uh, I think that the Bible does teach the intermediate state. And I know that there's some contemporary views that try to get around that and stuff, but I fully embrace intermediate state. I do think that this is what Christianity is teaching. And so I would say whatever we're going to argue about life after death, we have to include this view. All right. Now, having said that, how do you do that on my view? Because on my view, it seems one ramification of my view would be that if the human person just is the body and soul composite, and death is the ripping apart of body and soul, and one of those dies, and there's only a soul left, it seems as though you couldn't have an intermediate state because the person wouldn't exist to be there. Uh, Right, and I see that objection. That is, in fact, a clear issue to be thought through, okay? So I think that there's two options here for somebody that's in the Thomistic camp at this point. I think option number one is to say that, hey, look, while it may be true that the person himself or herself is ripped apart, um, that doesn't mean that the, the soul cannot separate. And even while you might not call, technically speaking, you might not call that soul the person, it, it is still the very same soul that was in the person the whole ride. And it maintains a consciousness and it maintains a first person perspective and it maintains all of those things. And it may, and it rests in the presence of Christ longing and waiting for him to return and resurrect the body. I, I, as, as troubling as that might sound, I actually think it begins to make sense as out of why the new Testament places such a strong emphasis on the need for bodily resurrection. So I think that is one option that one could take if you're a Thomist and you want to go, you want to hold this view. Um, 
And that is just a simple, because Thomas does this. Thomas says, look, the soul is, there's a big fancy Thomistic word. The soul is subsistent, which is to say that the soul has the ability to separate from the body and death and continue existing apart from the body. Aquinas, I mean, Aristotle does not think that's possible, but Aquinas, this is an, an adaption of the view. He does think you can do that. So I think that's one route you could go. Another route you could go, and I do think this is possible on my approach to this, uh, given one of the modifications that I make to the Thomistic account, uh, and I've never argued this in writing, but I have a project I'm working on right now where I'm going to flesh this out. Um, one approach you could take on my version of this is, well, maybe, yeah, the soul goes, but maybe the soul goes with a certain portion of the body as well, right? So, a la Peter Van Inwagen brain snatching or a la Kevin Corker and body fission. Maybe it's not the whole body. Maybe it's not two sets of duplicate bodies that go, but maybe there the soul goes and a portion of the physical body goes with it enough that it actually maintains full on personhood in the intermediate state. It's not a full human organic body, but look, I don't have to have a full organic human body for me to continue existing. Right. I mean, just, Cue Monty Python in your mind. You'd lop off my arm and I could simply say it's only a flesh wound, right? I mean, it's, it's, I'm still here even if I don't have the full human body. So I think you could, on my view, take the soul up and a portion of the body and maintain full on personhood in this moment. And so, look, that's weird, right? And probably everybody listening is saying, man, that's strange. That's weird. And I just go, time out. We're talking about life after death. We're already in the weird category, y'all. I mean, this is strange stuff that we're talking. And death, remember that death is a disruption of what is normal, right? What is normal, what is natural mm-hmm. is bodies and souls being brought together in a person and life. That's what's normal and natural. And death is a disruption to the natural and to the normal order. So you're already within the realm of strange stuff happening in this moment. And I think that, so I think that there's ways that you could adopt or adapt even Thomas's view to satisfy these concerns about intermediate state. But at the end of the day, I am with my brothers and sisters that want to affirm intermediate state, because I think that is in fact what Christianity teaches. Yeah. And I think your distinction about what death means is pretty important because if you take death to be cessation of existence, you are kind of ruling out your possible ways out of it from the start, right? Right. That's right. So and you mentioned earlier you, you you take this Thomistic view because of its holism. Well, it seems, I think, if you read the literature, some people like John Cooper are going to say, well, I affirm a holism mm-hmm. and I affirm substance dualism. So why is it that someone else can't affirm a holistic view? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked me that question. So, yeah, there, John Cooper is going to say, well, I'm a holist, too. Hey, even people like J.P. Moreland are going to say, "Hey, I, I affirm holism in some regard." Um, and look, let me let me be very, very, very clear. I have deep admiration for these brothers and great respect for their work. I tend to think, however, that the brand of holism that they're endorsing, though, is not the brand of holism that we have to endorse. The brand of holism that they endorse is what we could call functional holism. And in fact, that is the actual language that J.P. Moreland uses. And functional holism is different from what we're describing here. What I'm describing, I would call ontological holism. J.P. Moreland talks about that and defines that differently than I do. I would define ontological holism as this. 
In fact, I even call throughout my writings, I call my view a brand of ontological holism in some ways. What I mean by that is it's not just that I can't function the way I'm supposed to without my body. It's that I can't be without my body and my soul together. That is to say, ontologically speaking, the human person is the body-soul composite. All right, so that's a strong brand of holism. And I think that is what Christianity has affirmed, okay? What these guys are affirming is, in my view, a lesser, a less beefier version of holism, okay? And what they mean is, they would say something like this, um, hey, look, while you just are your soul, so they made that identity claim about persons and souls, they're the same thing, persons are identical to their souls, while you just are your soul, so you can maintain your identity as it's supposed to be, you can't function the way God intends for you to function without a physical body. So God, when he made us, he intended for us to be the kinds of creatures that can throw baseballs, right? Or mow grass or lift hands in worship and things like that. He intends for us. So for example, in the garden of guests, uh, not the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of Eden, but there too, you know, <laughs> in the garden of, in the garden of Eden, what did he put Adam there to do? Tend the ground, cultivate it, Right to cultivate the ground, and, and he created him to be a farmer. And the point of functional holism is, bro can't farm if he doesn't have arms and a body to farm with. So on this view, while you just are your immaterial soul, you can't function the way God wants you to function without a body, so you have to have a body. And so the holism is found in the functions that God wants you to have, not the ontological identity. And I just see that as a lesser form. And I don't mean lesser in a, in a pejorative way there, like, ooh, that's an inferior. I just mean it's a, it's a, it's a lower version of what's required. And I, I, from my seat, I, I reject that view simply because I, the descriptions I, I see throughout Christian history are, man, what, what Christianity was saying was that persons are bodies and souls. And yeah, so that's what we have to find. It seems ideally what we would do in this case then is find that necessary condition for what we have to say about our material body and say, if you can't affirm this aspect of what it means to be a person, then you, then your view is bunk, right? So just saying our bodies are needed for functional purposes, not uh, sufficient for what right. we're trying to say, what what we right. think the Christian tradition has been trying to say, or, or the right. scripture obviously is That's trying right. to say. Yeah, I think that what scripture is saying is a more robust version of holism, is a, is a very simple, easy way to say it, that says persons, human persons are body-soul composites. So maybe some of the listeners are thinking, you know, all of this talk about self and personhood and human nature and how those terms relate to one another, how they're different from one another. It just seems kind of abstract. So um, I want to maybe finish up the conversation with talking about why um, the person in the pew should care about um, mm -hmm. this discussion. And maybe the best way to do that is to tie it to um, ethical discussions that are going on today. You've already touched on um, how these views uh, relate to maybe how you think through abortion. Um, but there's also, you know, discussions of, of gender and uh, how we understand ourselves and um, am I my body and all of those things that we are so um, in the news and I mean, on everyone's minds today. So maybe just talk to us, what, what are some of the ethical implications um, for these views and, and why you think your view um, can best answer some of these dilemmas that we face today? 
Yeah, so uh, let me mention uh, two ethical issues and then maybe a pastoral one as well. Um, so to start, pick up on what you just mentioned. Yeah, very likely, unless a person is just already interested in these philosophical and theological discussions, they might be listening to all of this going, man, why do you even care about all that stuff? So for the person of you that's not necessarily interested in philosophy and theology, let me tell you why this matters, okay? Um, take the ethical fights of our day. Take things like abortion. Take things like transgenderism and LGBTQ movements and all of those types of things, okay? So there's a little bit of an idea in the evangelical world that the best way, if you have to get into philosophy stuff to back up your arguments— there's this bit of a sense in the world today that the best way to do that is from within a substance dualist perspective. And so, for example, even in, in um, I'm thinking Scott Ray's work, again, someone I have deep respect and admiration for, J.P. Moreland's work in their combined book, Body and Soul, they spend the first two thirds of the book arguing for substance dualism to then in the last third of the book, apply it to these ethical issues. And essentially what they argue is that the best way to argue against abortion and the best way to, from a philosophical perspective, and the best way to argue against, you know, transgenderism or some other things like that is to adopt a substance dualist view. Because it, it essentially, in the case of abortion, what, what substance dualism is being brought to the table to do is make personhood immediately there at the moment of conception, right? So they could say, see, if it's materialism only, then it's not really a person until some late point in gestation. And so there's a lot of weeks or a lot of months in pregnancy when it's not yet a person. So abortion would be okay. Right. But they say the answer is just come back and say, ah, it's a person from the very moment of conception because the soul arrives at that very moment. And from that point forward, it's personhood. And now they can argue against it. Now, look, I will grant them that. Okay. I will grant them that indeed their view does accomplish personhood at the moment of conception. But I think that this position is a not only not the position that not only the only position that a Christian can hold. I think it might actually be unhelpful in some ways as we try to argue against abortion. Because think about what abortions do, right? First of all, think about what substance dualism says. The person is the soul. The person is not the body. That is very very clear on substance dualism. Person is the soul. Person is not the body. Now think about, secondly, what abortions do, right? They cram scissors into the back of a skull of a developing baby in a womb, and they suck the brains out. I'm not trying to be graphic, but this is essentially what happens right? in, in many cases of abortions. All right, but now wait a minute. Substance dualism is committed to the idea that the body and the brain, which just got removed in that abortion, and the physical body that just got killed in that abortion— Substance dualism is clear that the person is not that body. The person is actually something different from that body. So now think about all the rallies where people walk around with their sons and say things like abortion is murder. Well, if you adopt a substance dualist view, I have a hard time seeing how you can make that claim, right? The substance dualist could very well have other reasons for rejecting abortion, but it seems to me the substance dualist can't say that abortion is murder because they don't think that the person is the body, and that's what's taken out in the abortion. The person is the immaterial soul, and technically, according to substitutism, that should mean that that person is still fully intact and alive and well and doing all that stuff, so abortion can't be murder on that view. Take my view, for example. By contrast, 
if, if an evangelical Christian really wants to argue that abortion is murder, that's hard to do on substance dualism. That's not hard to do on my view. On my view, I can hold the sign up and says abortion is murder because on my view, the person is the body soul composite. And therefore, when those scissors go into the back of the skull and that vacuum sucks the brain out, you literally have murdered a human being. You've killed a human being on this point. My point is simple. I think my view, I think that the Thomistic hylomorphic views give you a better argument when we make the argument that this is murder. So that's one way that this stuff really matters. This, I think that if you hold the wrong views about human persons, it can cut the legs out from our moral arguments as we engage our culture. Okay, so that's one area. I think the same thing on transgenderism. Take, for example, um, and look, I, I say this with deep concern and sympathy. I, I know that friends that have gone through this, uh, I know that the, their struggle is very real, and I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it or be callous by this at all. I say this with, you know, as much compassion as I can imagine. But the argument that I know that this physical body is male, but I'm not male. I'm something else trapped in this male body. Guess what that is? That just is the substance dualist claim. So when substance dualists, evangelical substance dualists tell me that substance dualism is going to enable them to make arguments against transgenderism and all this other stuff, I scratch my head and I go, how? It seems to me substance dualism actually hands the ontology needed to make the very transgender arguments that transgender people are making. It actually supplies them the best possible ontology to make their arguments. Mm -hmm. My view, however, Thomas's view, I think absolutely you can't say that because for Thomas's view, the person is the body soul composite, right? So this soul and this body go together. And on Thomas's view, this soul could only be attached to that body. So if that body is male, then that person is male. If that body is female, then that person is female, right? So it seems to me that Thomism, once again, gives us this more robust footing to make the kinds of arguments that need to be made on the ethical front. So those are two ethical issues. Let me give one more. This is pastoral. What about counseling? Well, should you use medicine? Well, I'd ask this question. What are human persons? They're, they're bodies and souls. Those bodies are made of brains. And now I'd ask another question. Are, is physical stuff also disrupted by the fall? Yes, it is. I mean, the thorns and thistles are springing up from the grounds. Romans 8, creation is groaning for Christ to return so that he can restore even the physical stuff of this world. This explains where cancer comes from and and disease comes from, and hurricanes come from. The, the physical stuff is broken too, and hylomorphism says you are you are physical and non-physical together. So therefore, when we counsel people, sometimes it is a purely spiritual issue. Sometimes there's something wrong with the machinery of the human person. The brain is broken, or the chemicals are out of balance. Could that stuff be very real? Yes, I think it could. And it, it, to me, what this does is it gives, us, it gives us not just permission, it gives us a bit of a mandate that we have to think robustly about how we counsel people, how we care for people, uh, and how we provide pastoral ministries for them. These are some implications I think the views have. That's helpful. Brandon, did you have a follow-up on any of that? No, I didn't. I was just, as he was talking about the um, 
the dualism and how it relates to abortion and, and transgender transgenderism. It made me think about our conversation with Nancy Piercy, um, and her book on love thy body. Um, yeah. just to remind the listeners about that. I think that's a tremendously helpful book, um, when it comes to the ethical issues and how it relates to all this. Mm-hmm. So Jamie, I, I know you've got Twitter. People can follow if they want to follow some of your stuff. Do you have a website? I do have a website. I think it's jamiedo.com. Uh, I also do a podcast called The Towel and Basin, and it's a bit of a hodgepodge podcast, frankly, because I'm very interested in these philosophical and theological issues. I'm also very interested in pastoral ministry, and I'm also very interested in parenting. And so those are the three big areas that we talk about a lot uh, on the podcast. Lately, it's been almost all um, philosophical stuff because we did a bunch of pastoral stuff early on. Um, but it's a bit of a hodgepodge of those interests that I have. And, um, so it's, uh, that's what we do. It's called Talon Basin. Um, so yeah, Twitter and stuff like that is a place you can follow me as well. Awesome. Well, I, I definitely, if you're listening to this, I think you should check out his stuff, follow him. I know he's, you've got multiple books that you've written or co-authored. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, go fi- go find those. I'll try to link to to as many of them as I can in the show notes, so you can just go click the little link and it'll take you there. And, and in years um, to come, there'll be more on out. this so, stuff that we've talked about today. I've got two works uh, in in progress right now. One is uh, working towards publishing the dissertation I did on this, where I would go through all these views we just talked about today. And then I'm actually really excited honing in on a volume on uh, the resurrection and the dead. What happens? Oh, that's awesome. Do you know publishers for either of those? Uh, I can say one of them, uh, for the dissertation, it is under review with a publisher. Uh, it's not an evangelical publisher, um, but I can't say who right now. Um, and then I, IVP with the resurrection of the dead one. That's awesome. Well, I will obviously link to those and I'll expect free copies. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, But that's, that's great. So thanks Jamie for taking the time to talk with us about all this stuff. I think this is great. Um, I think you are one of the uniquely uh, people suited to be able to communicate this to a very low, low level. You know, a lot of people, they know a lot of the stuff, but they can't communicate. No, I didn't call you a dummy. (laughs) I called you someone who could communicate down, down the ranks, you know, (laughs) I think Peter Van Wagen is great, but I don't think he can communicate below like top tier graduate student. Right. The right. first time I read him, I thought I have no idea what is yeah. going on here. So I think you are one of the few that can actually communicate to people who don't have all these concepts in the, in their tool belt already, you know? Yeah. So I think people should follow your stuff, read your stuff. I think church members can actually understand it. So highly recommend it all. Uh, I appreciate and- it. Hey, let me say something about you real quick uh, for folks listening to this today. So we actually did this where I could, where's video going on. I could see their faces and everything going on. Jordan's son has been sitting on his lap. He's two. He's behaving like a jewel for a solid (laughs) hour here. Uh, Brother, don't you suck up every minute of that stuff. (laughs) You know, he did this to me yesterday. We recorded (laughs) another episode yesterday and he sat there the whole time. And at the end, I asked him if he wanted to say anything. He said no, but you can hear that, so I'll count it. But he's surprisingly good in my lap. He just, you know, everybody's working from home at this point. Mm-hmm. And he, if he sees me, he wants to be in my room and sit with me. He's got blocks back here that he plays with a lot of the time. So he's part of my meetings constantly, That's cool. uh, waving and doing different stuff. So it's a lot of fun. 
Uh, and I guess he's part of the podcast now. I should give him a co-host label. Right. <laughs> he's a cute kid, man. Enjoy it. Well, thanks. Well, everybody, li- everybody listening, I, I mean, I, I think this has been awesome. I think Jamie's awesome, so I don't want to repeat that anymore. But <laughs> I think those who've been listening, you've been listening uh, to a great episode of the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.